get some lights on. Get some lights. People in darkness have seen a great light. All right. If you've got your Bibles, please uh, open it to 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. Um, again, we won't be reading it. It is fairly long, so it, hopefully you've had a chance to read through it. Uh, not as long as previous weeks, fortunately. Um, but if you haven't, that's okay. We'll run through briefly a little bit later so we know what's going on. Uh, but if you need a Bible, just uh, give a show of hands and we'll get you a Bible. Cool. All right, well, before we begin uh, and come to God's Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is living and true and by your Holy Spirit teaches us, rebukes us, encourages us and reminds us of what you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray that as we come now to your word today, that you will help us to see the truth, help us to see how it speaks to us today and help us to see how it changes us today as well. And so we ask that Holy Spirit, you will be at work in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world promises much. It promises money will give you happiness. It promises that uh, good health will give you a good life. Uh, it promises you that success and fame and so much will satisfy your soul. Uh, it, but it's not just the world. Christians even promise things as well. They, they promise that if you have enough faith that everything will be good. They, they promise that if you read your Bible or if you pray enough that your faith will grow and you'll feel closer to Jesus. They promise all sorts of things. But I suspect that many of you will know that promises can be empty that promises that people make, that the world make, that even yourself might make, often are empty and fail to live up to expectations. And if I've ever done anything of the sort, if I've promised something, uh, whether it uh, be some kind of happiness or growth formula or something, then I'm sorry. But there is one who makes promises and they are true. Uh, we have a God who has made promises throughout his word and we believe them to be true. And in our passage today we see the uh, fulfillment of a number of these promises. Promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David and to the people of Israel. They come together in our passage today. Last week we saw the completion of the building of the temple and we see now the promises of that coming to pass. And what better way, when, when, you, when you have something great accomplished, what better way to do that 
then celebrate with a feast. And that's what we have here. We begin, uh, let's run through this so we know what we're looking at. We have a feast uh, begin. Solomon summons the elders and leaders of Israel to come together to celebrate the, the coming of the ark. This is uh, a representation of God's presence and uh, also his throne. Uh, and it is being brought into the temple. It, it's God's homecoming. This is a homecoming party. Uh, but the, this, this coincides, we see in verse 2, that this happens in the seventh month. Uh, and this is uh, this coincides with one of the big feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Um, and this feast celebrated God's provision uh, and protection. This happens right after harvest time. right? They've collected the harvest. This is a response to God's provision. But it's also harking back to the Exodus when they lived in tents in the wilderness and God's protection over them. So the timing of this is not coincidental. Um, and then towards the end of uh, verse 10, uh, you, the priests have put the ark in the most holy place, in the inner sanctuary of the temple, and as they come out, the cloud fills the temple. Uh, and this is the glory of the Lord, verse 11. And this again echoes Mount Sinai when the people met with God. Moses went up to the mountain and this dark cloud surrounded Mount Sinai. Same thing when the tabernacle was originally built, the predecessor of the temple. When that was built, God would come down in a cloud and meet with Moses and the people. And so again, we have this echoing happening where the cloud fills the temple to show the people that God is there. Move on to verse 12 uh, to 21. And here Solomon turns and blesses the people. uh, And he blesses the people on the premise of God's promise. God's fulfilled his promise to his people, to his promise to David. Uh, And David wanted to build this temple and now it is done. And so praise God, blessed be God. Uh, And Solomon blesses the people there. Then in verse 22 to 53, we have our biggest section uh, where Solomon now prays to God. He speaks to God and In verse 27, he he makes this really interesting comment. Let me read it. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And we'll we'll pick up on that a little bit later. But here Solomon is praying to God. He is praying that this temple that has been built will serve its purpose. In verses 31 to 53, we have a series of seven petitions that Solomon makes to God. Um, these seven petitions are uh, meant to illustrate the scope of prayer. Um, we'll get again get into that a little bit later. Um, but what's interesting is five out, of the, five out of those seven petitions involve forgiveness. So five out of those seven petitions involve forgiveness. Again, we'll pick this up a little bit later on. After Solomon has finished praying, again he blesses the people. He uh, turns to the people, verse 54 on, he turns and blesses the people again and praises God. In verse 56 we get uh, his opening line there, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he has promised. And right, so this is the fulfillment of the promise. 
God has promised that he will give his people a land, a home, a place to call home and give them rest. So Solomon here sees that God has done that uh, and then he moves to encourage uh, the people of Israel to respond in obedience. One thing I want us to note here is that this is a response to God's goodness. right? Relationship, then obedience. not obedience than a relationship. It's easy to read through the Old Testament and go laws, 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 laws. But here Solomon reminds us that when you look carefully, it's not about laws, it's about relationship. God first made people. He made Adam and Eve. He made man and woman and then he gave them a command. Our obedience to God stems out of relationship, not the other way around. And then we get to verse 62 to 66, and again we get details of this feast. And it sounds amazing, by the way. You should read it. There's 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. I want to be there. I don't know about you, but I want to be there. Uh, I'd be happy with a suckling pig at one of our celebrations. Hint, hint. Um, but you just read this. It, it, this is an amazing feast. And it goes on for 14 days, depending on the Bible you're reading. But seven, seven days at least. This is a week-long party. That's amazing. So anyway, we get details there. And then in closing, uh, we get uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, where God appears again to Solomon. Here he affirms his promise to Solomon that if Solomon is obedient, then God will keep his promise to his people. Uh, We unpacked this last week, so I'm not going to do it again, but uh, obedience, uh, God's promise is premised on the king's obedience, not the people, but the the king. Uh, And God reaffirms that, that as long as Solomon is obedient and the kings that come after him are obedient, God will keep his promise. But then one thing that we get here is God also gives him a warning. He gives him a warning that if Solomon or the kings to follow do not obey, then they will be cut off. The promises of God will be cut off from these people. Uh, And this is an echo of Deuteronomy 28. If you want to make sense of what we've been looking at in Kings, if you want to make sense of the Old Testament, go read Deuteronomy 28. If you can make sense of that, you'll begin to make sense of why the Old Testament plays out the way that it does. But anyway, we we have this warning uh, to Solomon that if he does not uh, remain obedient, then the promise will be cut short. Now the interesting thing, and I normally don't do this, but the interesting thing is that as you read through this, is there's this kind of sandwich layered thing going on. right? Because at the beginning of this chapter, you have... Uh, the details of the feast, the ark coming in, coming in and the feast there. But then at the end, you also have details of the feast. So you've kind of got these, these bread layers happening. right? Then what comes next? It's Solomon praying for the people. But then what's right in the middle? Solomon's prayer. The point of all that is our attention should be on Solomon's prayer. Everything around it is kind of decoration. The attention should be on Solomon's prayer, and we'll do that in a moment. But Solomon's life flows a similar pattern. 
right, so Solomon becomes king, his life will end with him dying, not becoming, well, him stopping being king. God appears to him in chapter 3, and in the beginning of chapter 9, we have God appearing to him again. And then smack bang in the middle, what we saw last week was the building of the temple. And in Solomon's life, we're meant to see that the temple is central. Now, again, I'm not going to unpack that. We did that last week. So go check that out if you missed that. But there's this structure, and it's meant to help us understand what's going on. Because you can read through this and it's like, what's the point of all this? It just sounds like some historical record. But the details are here when you look at that in Solomon's prayer. And we're going to spend most of our time looking at that. And there's three things I want to, I want to kind of draw out uh, from our passage. Um, the purpose of the temple. We've kind of been talking about this all the way through, but I want to kind of just unpack that a little bit further. Um, how and why we pray. Uh, and lastly, the mission of God. Because right here in these verses, we have a reminder of what this is all about. So let's, uh, let's do that. Let's unpack this. Uh, again, if you have questions at any point, please just shoot up a hand or look at me strangely and um, we'll see if I can help you. Um, but let, let's, let's get into this. For those of you who've been with us uh, over these last few weeks, what is the point of the temple? What, what's this all been building up to? Right, this is God's house. This is the place where he is dwelling on earth. The God of heaven dwelling on earth. The temple is his house. And what's the point of that? So that people can meet him. People can engage. People can interact with him. And this is not new. This is something that was in the beginning, right from the start. Right, The Garden of Eden was God's place of meeting with people. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And if you read uh, Genesis 2, God puts Adam in the garden to do what? To work and care for it. But, but in the Hebrew, the, the, the idea is better to serve and to guard it. Adam was there in the garden to serve and to guard the garden, why? So that God could continue to meet with people. He wasn't there just to tend to the garden and make it look pretty. No, he was there to ensure that this place would always be a place where God could meet with his people. You know the story, Adam and Eve fail to do that. They, they disobey, they don't trust God and, and so God has to kick them out, exile them from the garden. Uh, and then we have this period where things are kind of up in the air. So how does God meet with people? Well, people build altars. People build altars so that they can meet with God. They're temporary meeting places. As you go through the Old Testament, people are constantly building altars. Why? So they can meet and talk with God. And so we have these temporary meeting places. Then we get to the Exodus God brings the people of Israel out of Egypt and 
as he does that, as he begins to set up this nation, he gives them the command to build a tabernacle, a tent, a special tent where he could meet with them. It was a portable but permanent meeting place that would go with the people everywhere they went. And it would be at the heart of their community. Right? Every time they moved, the t- tabernacle would be set right in the middle and everyone else would be around it. It was smack bang in the heart of the community. And it would be the place where God would meet with his people. The ark would be uh, in the tabernacle, uh, the ark that's being brought into the temple here in our passage. That would sit in the, in the tabernacle and people would come and there they would meet with God. And then we finally get to where we are now in our passage where the temple has been built. And this temple is the culmination of all those things. If you recall last week, the decorations of the temple recall the Garden of Eden. Right? There are altars where sacrifices can be made and the ark is placed in the inner sanctuary, in the most holy place where God will dwell. The ark represents God's presence and this cloud has come and he has filled the temple and he has said, I am home. I am here. It, to me, it, it reminds me of, maybe this is a negative memory, but when you're having to go see your teacher for something, you go to their office. Uh, if you ever want to talk to me, I'll invite you to my study. If you ever come to my place, we'll sit around the dining table or sit on the couch. The temple is a place where you meet with God. It is his house. It is his home. And how do we do that? We do that through prayer. Prayer is the means that we have been given to meet and to talk with God. And so Solomon does that. The ark has been brought into the temple. God is there and he is present How does Solomon engage with God? He prays. He prays in order to speak to God. Now, the the, the petitions that we have here from verse 31 to 53, there's seven of them there. Uh, We're not going to unpack all of them. Um, But the point of this is that these are meant to cover every aspect of life. Um, Again, I mentioned numbers a few weeks ago. There's seven. Again, seven is this kind of perfect number. Uh, if you've ever seen the number plates, 777, people are like, I want the perfect life. I want, Yeah, that's kind of the idea. There are seven prayer points, seven petitions, and they're meant to t- remind us that we can actually come to God with anything. There is nothing that is off bounds, out of bounds with God. We can come to God with anything. Now, there's a few things I do want to highlight, though. In coming to God, there are a few things that happen. Verse 36, Solomon prays that God will teach them the right way to live. One of the things about coming to God is searching for truth. The search on the right way to live. Verse 40, uh, when God acts... In the midst of life, what's the purpose? So that they will fear him. They will fear him. Now we've talked about fear not being one of being afraid or scared, but one of recognizing God as powerful and mighty 
and worthy of respect. So we come to God and we, we want a right perspective of who he is. Now verse 44 might be a little odd, so I just want to unpack this one a little bit, because this is Solomon's prayer. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. This is not a justification for holy war. This is not a justification for people going, I'm going to go fight. God go with me. This is not a justification of that. That is an abuse of that. What does it say? It says, when your people go to war against their enemies, listen, wherever you send them, there is a clear qualification of going to war or going to battle. It is when God sends them. It is not just, oh, I I don't like that guy, I'm going to knock him out. That's not what's going on here. And so when we read the Old Testament particularly and when we look through history, there is no apology for people who take power into their own hands and abuse it. There's no, there's no permission here to do that. Even when they say, God told me so. Right? That, that, that's not the qualification. It's when God sends them. Now, that's a whole other topic in itself to unpack. But the point here is that God is in charge. People don't just go to war or go to fight on their own thoughts and opinions and basis. God gives criteria and guidance around those things. So I just want to unpack that because I think that's one of the standout things that people might read and go, what is going on there? But the point is there that God leads his people. Right? People don't just go and do something, go, hey, God, go with me. That's not how life works. That's not how the Christian life works. We don't just charge into something and expect God to go with us. Instead, God says, let me send you. Verse 46 gives us a poignant reminder. What does it say? When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Before you get any crazy ideas that this doesn't apply to you, it does. Everyone sins. It's kind of the point. And five out of the seven petitions here remind us that actually half the time the cause is ourselves. Now, understand that that's not necessarily your own deliberate moral failing. That's not the scope of sin. Sin is more than that. Sin is the very fact that life is broken. The very fact that I will make an unconscious decision, an unintentional action, and that that is wrong. That is broken. There is sin. It might be unintentional. It might be unconscious. But that doesn't take away from the sin. Sin is not just deliberate and moral failing. Sin is what affects every aspect of life when it goes wrong. Right, And so when we read this, it's not a, you're a horrible person and you need to repent. No, it's, life just is broken. And because of that brokenness, things go wrong. And so we come to God and we seek forgiveness for those as well. It's not just coming to God and saying, God, forgive me for the deliberate moral failing. It's God, life is broken and I need you to forgive me. Forgiveness is not just the dealing with the moral 
repair. It's not just the forgiving the immoral. It's also dealing with the brokenness that permeates all of life. So verse 46 reminds us that we are all dealing with this sin, this brokenness in life. And so that means we also have reason to come to God. But lastly, the basis of all of Solomon's prayer, verse 51 and verse 53, is that God's people belong to him. The Israelites are God's chosen people and anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus belongs to him. And so we pray to God We can pray to God because we belong to him. And the last thing I want to pick up, we see in verse 41. As for the foreigner. As for the foreigner. You see, God has chosen the people of Israel not for their own benefit. Um, I had had someone ask me the other day, why aren't the Chinese people in the Bible? Why, why aren't they there? Why aren't the the uh, the Africans the well the Africans kind of in there, but the Europeans? Why, why aren't why hasn't God chosen them? But the thing that we need to understand and the thing we need to remember is God tried. Right, you read Genesis 1 to 11, God is dealing with the whole world. But it's only until you get to chapter 12 that God suddenly chooses one man to build a nation. But the purpose of this nation is what? Go back to the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve and what does he say to them? He says, multiply and fill the earth. Multiply and fill the earth. Why? What's the purpose? So that the earth will be filled with people who know God. Right? It's not just life reproduction. That's not the point. God's not just about making more people. No, God is interested in filling the world with his glory. With people who know him, with people who reflect him with people who are like him. Right right at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God says, go and make the world reflect me. But what happens? People don't do that. right? Adam and, Adam and Eve fail, Cain kills Abel, uh, more people kill more people, and it gets to a point when it's Noah's day and God says, I've had enough, I'm going to get rid of everyone, and he sends the flood. He starts again with Noah in chapter 9 and what happens? The cycle just progresses. It just repeats itself. And then you have the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and God says, fine, if you're not going to go, I'll make you go. And he confuses all their languages. If you want to know where languages come from, that's a good place to start. But he confuses their languages. They get angry at each other and they all spread across the earth. Right from the beginning, God is interested in spreading people all through the world so that people will fill the earth with his glory. That the world will be filled with people who know him, who are like him. That's the point. And when he chooses Abraham in Genesis 12, what does he say to him? I will bless you, I will make you into a great nation. Why? So that you will be a blessing to the nations of the world. The point is not so that Abraham and the people that come from him will be some special people. 
their unique special qualities only because God is using them to fill the earth with people who know him, who are like him and who will be like him. And that's what we see here in Solomon's prayer. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land, why? Because of your name. And this is the interesting part. For men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name. Just get your head around that. The whole point of all of this, the people of Israel being chosen by God and the building of this temple, is so that people will know God. That's it. That's the point. A little while ago, I was down Gympie Road at the big intersection uh, near the bus stop down there, uh, if you know where that is. Um, and just happened to see a whole bunch of kids uh, running across the road. And it's just like, you see the uniform, you, you see the kids, and you're like, you just don't think well of that school. Shot a little message on Facebook to the school, they weren't particularly impressed. But if you've been in a school with a uniform, you know what they tell you. If you're wearing your uniform outside of school in public, your behaviour better be up to scratch because it reflects badly on the school. And you, ha you know the schools that have a bad reputation because their kids are out on the street in uniform causing trouble. Right? God says, I have chosen Israel so that people might know me. He has clothed them in his uniform so that as they go about their life, as they go about their day, as they go into the world, people will know him. What does all of this mean for us? How does this change anything for us? We're not Israel. We don't have a temple. This isn't a temple. What, what's this all tell us? Last week we saw how Jesus replaces the temple. Jesus said that he would destroy the physical temple and he himself would become the temple, the place where people would meet with God. But it goes beyond that. If you want to hear more about that, go last week. There's a lot there. But it goes beyond that. As Jesus becomes the temple where people meet with God, as people come to Jesus, something happens. 1 Peter 2 tells us that as people come to Jesus, as they put their faith and their trust and their life in Jesus, they become the stones that build the temple. They become living stones. So Christians, people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, become living stones who become part of this temple, who become part of this dwelling place of God, who become a place where people can meet with God. People who don't know God, the foreigner, the Gentile, the, the person outside who doesn't know God can come 
not to a place, but to a people and meet God. So when we talk about church, we're not talking about a building. We're talking about people. Knock this place down, it doesn't make a difference. We, we had a tech hiccup this morning, that doesn't matter. If people were here, we could still do church. I was kind of hoping that it would actually, because it would actually get us to focus on the thing that mattered. We are here in Jesus to be a place, to be a people where God can be seen where people can meet him, experience him, hear from him and discover life in him. I used the illustration last week that you can walk into a house and tell a lot about a person but you won't know a thing about the person themselves. You can walk into someone's house and you go, oh, they've got that poster up there, they must like that band or they've got a really clean desk, they must be really organised but... Until you actually sit down with that person, you know nothing of them. And people could walk into the temple and see the grandeur, the decorations, the gold, the, the, the Garden of Eden in picture. They can walk in here and they might hear great music and they, they might get great food afterwards or good coffee or whatever. But until they sit down with God's people, and engage with them, they won't know God. They won't know Jesus for who he is. They go, oh, Jesus is someone you sing to or someone you pray to and talk to. But they won't know him. As people who put their lives in Jesus, we are turned into stones, being built up to be a temple, a dwelling place, as Peter says, a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood offering sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus we are being made, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, why that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people but now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. First Peter 2, by the way. The point is that unless we are seeking to live lives that reflect Jesus as a community, not just individually, but as a community, because you can't just build a place with one stone, you need multiple stones, unless we are a place that is seeking to be like Jesus, people will not meet Jesus here. Right, It is the gathering of individual stones who are seeking to be like Jesus, who are seeking to live life for him and with him and in him. As these stones are being built together into a spiritual house, into the church, people will meet God. And if you want to look at what that looks like, have a look at First Peter chapters 1 and 2. Uh, he, actually the whole book really. He unpacks what it means to be like Jesus. What it means for us to be church. Right? We are called to be holy. We are called to rid ourselves of all sorts of sin. 
And as we do that, we are being built up into a place, a temple, a spiritual house where people will meet Jesus. And one of the key things, one of the most important things that we can do in all of that is pray. Because unlike any other form of communication, prayer opens the doors of heaven and brings us to the throne of God. Do you get that? That when you come to God and pray, the distance from here to the throne of heaven is shortened in that instant. That is the privilege that we have when it comes to prayer. The temple was a physical place where people could come close to God. But as Christians in Jesus, we get direct access to God, the throne of God. When the temple was built, the ark where God's presence was represented was placed in the most inner room. And that room was curtained off so that no one could actually go in. The priest could go in once a year. And so people could only get so close to God physically with the temple. But see, in Jesus, something amazing happened. Jesus gives his life for us on the cross. And that very moment when Jesus died, something happened in the temple. The curtain of that inner room tore from top to bottom in two. If you remember, it's probably about eight metres high, if not more. I think Herod made it even bigger. But the curtain of this inner room from top to bottom was torn in two. And in Jesus' death, people now have direct access to God. And every time you open your heart, not not just your mouth, but every time you open your heart to God to speak to him, to meet with him, for lack of a better illustration, you are teleported into the presence of God. There is a spiritual dynamic where you are brought into the presence of God because of Jesus' death. And you get direct access to God in prayer. The promise, the prayer of Solomon is based on the fact that the people of Israel belong to God. And when Jesus sheds his blood on the cross, when you put your faith and your trust and give your life to him, he purchases you, he purchases you, he buys you, he redeems you, and you become his. Not only does Jesus' death open us To God, he brings us into the family of God. He brings us into the people of God. And when we pray, we pray because we belong to him, not because of any other reason, but because in Jesus we belong to him. And as I mentioned, one of the highlights of Solomon's prayers is that forgiveness is often the request. Forgiveness of sin, to respond to a situation. The the overwhelming need is forgiveness, to, to deal with sin. And again, in Jesus, not only are we given access to God, not only do we become part of the people of God, but we also get the issue of sin dealt with. 
Because in Jesus' death, he defeats sin, he defeats death, and he frees us from it. So we come. We can come freely. We can come confidently to God because he has given us access, he has brought us into his family, and he has dealt with this problem, this brokenness of sin. And we can come to him. And so there is nothing that we can't pray about. There is not anything that we can't bring to God, no matter how mundane we might think it is. Because as long as sin affects the way that we live, unconscious or unintentional as it may be, as long as brokenness and sin pervades our life, we need to come to God. And we bring all of those things to Him. Whether that's sickness, whether that's an argument with family or stress at work or whatever it might be. We can bring those to God because all of those things matter. But then just as we've been shown mercy, we also need to show that mercy. Israel wasn't chosen because they were special. In fact, they were nobodies. If you, if you are into world history much, Israel doesn't factor. It just doesn't appear on the world stage. It's not meant to. The point is that God takes the weak and the broken and the foolish things of this world to display his goodness and his glory and faithfulness. Abraham, you, Abraham God chooses Abraham to be the, the starting point for this nation of Israel and he's a horrible guy. Read his life story. He's a horrible guy. He goes into a foreign land and he tells Sarah, his wife, to pretend to be his sister so that he doesn't get in trouble and he can get in on the royal court and get a good life out of it. He's not the kind of character you would uphold as moral and worth modelling. God chooses the foolish things of this world to show himself glorious, good and faithful. And so whatever view you might have of yourself, whatever perspective you might have of yourself, no matter what weakness or failing you might weigh on your shoulders, God says, so what? Here's Jesus. Let him change you. And he calls the weak, the broken, the frail, the failure, the outcast of this world to do what? To be a blessing to all people. To fulfill this commission that he gave to Abraham he gives to all people that put their faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus at the end of his life many of you will know gives the great commission go therefore and make disciples of all nations why so that the nations will be blessed so that they will know God that they will see God that they will experience God He doesn't call for experts and perfectionists and specialists. 
And he calls for the weak, the broken, the outcast, the frail, and anything else you want to throw in there. He takes all of those things so that he will be made glorious. So that the world will see that he is good and that he is faithful. And my question is, do you see that? Do you see that God can use you? Do you see that God can take whatever you have, whoever you might be, what are gifts and abilities or lack thereof, whether you are rich or poor, whatever you bring to God, God says, that's great. Now let's be a blessing to others. And that is God's promise. God's promise is that he will be with us. At the end of Jesus' commission, he says, and I will be with you always until the very end of the age. And Jesus in John 14 says that whoever makes his home with Jesus, God the Father and Jesus the Son will make his home in them. And and that is the promise that God makes to us. In a world that makes empty promises, that makes promise of success and happiness and, and all the rest, God makes this promise that I will be with you always. Now he doesn't promise that we will necessarily have a good life. He doesn't promise necessarily that we will find success or fame or riches. Nothing wrong with them, but he doesn't promise them. He doesn't necessarily promise that we'll escape the hardships and the challenges of this world. What he does promise though is that he will be with us. No matter what life brings, he will be with you. That when you go to work tomorrow and you're faced with a massive project that's just stressing you out, God says, yeah, I'm not necessarily going to take that stress away, but I'll be there with you. I'll walk with you. When you go through your week and your kids are driving you insane, whether you're a teacher or a parent, and, and you go through your week and they're driving you insane, God doesn't say, I'm going to make them good and obedient. He says, I will be with you. When you walk through life, no matter what life throws at you, God may not necessarily promise that he will take it away. He may. He's God of heaven. He can do whatever he likes. He can heal people who are sick. He can give people new jobs. He can fill people's banks accounts if he wants to. He can do any of that. He doesn't promise that. He can. What he does promise is that he will be with you. And until you realize that there is nothing more precious than someone who will walk with you through life, everything else is just an empty promise. Here we have a God who promises that he will be with us from beginning to end. Everyone else might desert you. The world might desert desert you. But God doesn't. And the whole point from beginning to end, Garden of Eden to the temple and into the future is God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with them. And that's the point. And that's what I want to leave with you. Here we have a God who will never forsake you. 
who will never leave, who will never depart, but instead will walk through you no matter what life throws at you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you choose to be with us. And we ask that you would help us to know that you are with us no matter what circumstances life brings, no matter what tomorrow brings. Remind us that you are there with us. Help us as we uh, go from this place that we will be people as we come together where people will meet you. Help us to grow and to be more like Jesus. But more importantly, to know ourselves that we, that you are with us and us with you. And so, Father, we just commit this all to you and ask that you would remind us of this in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.